All right. So tonight, James 4, 1 through 3. James 4, 1 through 3. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war and yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. Lord, we pray right now for the word of the Lord, and I pray, God, that you would give me the ability to speak it, Lord, even as you've laid it on my heart today. In Jesus' name, bless the church in the name of the Lord. Amen. Everybody say, in Jesus' name. Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to talk to you tonight about war and peace. War and peace. And speaking of war, it would appear we're frighteningly near a very dangerous war, such as when President Kennedy confronted the Soviets in uh, what history now calls the Cuban Missile Crisis, 13 knuckle-biting days in October of 1962. Today, President Trump, in response to North Korea's threatening to attack U.S. territories promised fire and fury like the world has never seen and spoke of U.S. nuclear superiority, the superiority of our nuclear arsenal. These are, these are the words that no one ever wanted to hear spoken by a leader or anyone who had the ability to push that red panic button. So it is very alarming, and people are, are alarmed. We know that North Korea has intercontinental ballistic missiles now capable of striking any city in the U.S. And what is not known for sure is whether or not they have miniaturized nuclear warheads capable of, capable of being fitted to those missiles. But North Korea is still at war with South Korea and still at war with the United States. The Korean War of 1948 to 1952 is, is still on. It's an ongoing war. There never was a peace treaty. There, there have been repeated negotiations over the years, but no peace deal has ever been signed, technically, we are still at war, and for this reason, one of the highest U.S. military presences anywhere in the world is located in South Korea. And so, uh, <clears throat> this would not start a war if anything happens now. It wouldn't start a war. It would continue the war that had already been started and, and perhaps would lead to its final and horrific finish. But North Korea is not alone in this world to be regarded as a rogue nation. There are others who are working overtime to obtain nuclear, nuclear capability, and they're being dealt with by the rest of the world, even as North Korea has been dealt with in time, which is to kick the can down the road and let somebody else deal with it later on. Sooner or later, one of these nuclear candles will ignite, and when it does, 
world watch out. A total nuclear conflict could indeed fulfill the descriptions of the prophecies of worldwide devastation described in the book of Revelation. We are living, I believe, really living at the end of days, the last days. I, I believe the coming of the Lord is imminent. I believe that this world cannot escape some type of major catastrophic, ca catastrophic event, whether it be climate, whether it be man-induced, whether it be the result of war. This world is on the brink. It is a powder keg ready to explode, and it must happen. Humans, humans have not changed in all of human history. And all we have to do is go back in human history and we see what has been played out before is about to be played out again. When two or three generations are removed from such great catastrophes as World War I and World War II, we tend to forget the horror of such conflicts. And there are rogue nations and rogue leaders ready ready to go to war to prove a point. War is a terrible and a deadly thing, but oftentimes it is a necessity, an inescapable necessity of the human condition. We know what the Bible says. We have, we have the provenance of the Word of God to arm us efficiently. We are to our generation what Noah was to his. Noah, the man of God, who had the plan of God, who knew the destiny of the world, who was preparing for the future catastrophe that God promised would come. Noah, whose operation was based only on faith, only on faith that he had indeed heard from God, that God was indeed real, and that God was indeed serious about it. Yet there was something about it that was enough to motivate him to spend 120 years and build the world's largest ship up until modern days should come. He did all of that, and it turned out that God did indeed send a flood. Our Bible is not the only and sole reference to the Noahic flood because there are uh, Babylonian cuneiform tablets uh, that long ago, thousands and thousands of years ago, write about and speak about a flood in the same terms that our Bible speaks about Noah and his flood. So we know that in human history there is the knowledge of such an event. Noah didn't know it was going to happen until it did happen, but he had the information he needed to prepare himself, as do we. So we are to our generation what Noah was to his. And Noah spent his time building and preparing, but also warning. And it becomes us to do the same. It becomes us not to fall asleep just because it is an hour before midnight, but to stay awake and to watch and to be prepared. And I think that we have the Holy Spirit. I think that the Holy Spirit should be strong enough in us to give us glimmerings quiverings, Amen. prophetical urges of the things that we need to prepare for. I think we can get close enough to God that we can get a sense 
of things and know that the time is near. I'm sure that when Noah was nailing the last uh, peg into the ark and painting the last bit of pitch on it and putting the last bit of provender in it, that he knew that the end must now be near. It must almost be time. And the day came, and God called him into the ark. I almost feel like that we are called into the ark, as Noah was, waiting out those seven days before the water did come. Those were seven days of uncertainty, seven days of 120 years of preparation and now sitting here and nothing is happening. Why isn't something happening? But when God was ready and the time was right, it happened. We could say that those seven days was the last chance for people to do something about getting saved, but they didn't take it. And I think God is giving the church its last chance to spread the word and to ingather the harvest. I think God is giving backsliders their last chance to come back to the Lord. Amen. And to get right with God. Aren't you glad you're in the church today? We're in the church waiting, waiting, waiting for the flood. We're waiting for it to happen. And it's going to happen. But my message is not about prophecy, but it's something that reaches far deeper. And the title of my sermon is War and Peace, and that brings to mind a piece of great literature that was written in the 1800s by a Russian uh, named Leo Tolstoy who wrote uh, a seven-volume story of five families in Russia that were affected by the Napoleonic Wars when Napoleon invaded Russia and the things that happened to them. His famous book entitled War and Peace. And what uh, what it was is regarded as a central work of, of world literature and one of his finest literary achievements. And it chronicles the history of the French invasion of Russia and the impact of the Napoleonic era on Tsarist society uh, through the stories of five R Russian aristocratic families. And, and uh, uh, the War and Peace, Tolstoy said that his book War and Peace is not a novel, even less is it a poem and still less a historical chronicle. Large sections of it, especially the later chapters, are philosophical discussions rather than narrative. And Tolstoy also said that the best Russian literature does not conform to standards and hence hesitated to call War and Peace a novel. He regarded Anna Karenina as his true finest novel, but the Encyclopedia Britannica states it can be argued that no single English novel attains the universality of the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Now, I've not read War and Peace. Anybody here have? The length of it was enough to scare me away. And the fact that it dealt with Russian society was another reason for me to be disinterested in it. Very few of us have read War and Peace for many of those reasons. So we're little acquainted with it. But what happened to uh, uh, Russia, to Tsarist Russia, uh, may well have been the root cause of what would result in the early 1900s as the Russian Revolution. Because a war, um, uh, a war has consequences. And 
peace has its acceptances. Society was shaken enough in those years from that conflict that the order of the day, uh, the fabric of the aristocratic order of the day, the nature of that was in threads and tatters as a result of that war and eventually World War I would bring it to its final end. So war has its consequences and peace its acceptances. Look at Japan and Germany following World War II. Neither country would surrender until they were absolutely and totally crushed. Hitler allowed the Soviets to invade Germany and even to invade its capital of Berlin. And only in the last days of that Battle of Berlin, when it was certain that they must break through and win and capture or kill him, only in the end, in the last few days of that battle, did he elect to take his life and get out of the conflict. Now, he could have escaped the city. He had more than one opportunity to leave. He could have left. He could have fled, hidden in the hills and the mountains and many of his various hideaways and safe bunkers and places and, and escaped to live and to fight another day and lead the battle onward. But it was over, and Hitler was determined to take as many of his fellow countrymen with him into the grave as he could. If he had to go, they weren't worthy of living either, and they must go. It took Germany being totally crushed to be defeated. It took two terrible atomic bombs to be unleashed upon Japan for it to realize that it was totally crushed and defeated and out of the war. Otherwise, they would have fought on and on and on until every city and every region of Japan had been captured at horrific loss of American life. But though these two countries and their leaders involved the world in total war, and though each avoided a reasonable end to the conflict, and both had to suffer being ruthlessly crushed, what was the historical consequence of those wars? What followed was an amazing thing. In both of these countries that had to be totally crushed, there was a phoenix-like resurgence and revival. And it didn't take long for both of these countries to find their way back. And once they surrendered, Peace brought with it unimaginable prosperity. And until the rising trade wars with China, Japan in the 1980s was the United States' greatest trade competitor, costing millions of Americans their jobs because we preferred Japanese products to Chinese products. And Germany, Germany has become the single greatest economic partner in the European Union, in all of Europe. The stability of the economy depends more upon Germany's economy than any other country in that region of the world. And in just 70 plus short years, from total crushing, absolute defeat to where they sit today, what an amazing thing. 
That leads me to make a point. But before I do, let's look at some scripture. 1 Peter 2 and 11 says this. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. There are things that war against the soul. And whether you know it or not, you are in a battle and you are in a conflict, and I'm sure most of you do know it. Uh, who, who among us is not aware of the devil? Who among us is not aware of various spirits? Who among us has not at some point had to deal with some of these spirits or felt their effects or felt their influence? Who, who hasn't had to battle off depression or some other kind of a spirit uh, that, that, a, that can latch a hold of a normally healthy mind and, and, and bring it to a point of anxiety and, and fear and perplexity and confusion? Who among us has not had to deal with and trade off various aspects of what our flesh wanted, what our carnal nature wanted, the push and desire that came from within us to have things we wanted when God said, I don't want you to have those things. We have to deal with these things. And there are things that we are at war with and things that are at war with us. Now, the Bible tells us the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, so we cannot fight them in the flesh. But they are spiritual weapons and are mighty to, uh, unto God through the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. So we, we're fighting the flesh, but we're fighting with weapons that are not the flesh. They are spiritual weapons. We cannot beat our, 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 our flesh with carnal weapons. But we must rely on what the Spirit gives us. We must come prepared to battle with the equipment of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, our loins girt about with truth, and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We must fight with the equipment God gives us and not with what we can come up in ourselves. I'm sorry, but AA is not going to get you to stop doing what you've been doing. If you rely on them, amen, then you'll always be fighting that with the weapons of the flesh. Hallelujah. But if you will take their advice and seek the higher power and, and not just say it like every one of them does, but really seek it and know it, that find the power of the Holy Ghost, amen, it'll throw that spirit out and give you victory. <laughs> Hallelujah. The Holy Ghost can beat alcohol. It can beat nicotine. It can beat marijuana. It can beat crack cocaine. Amen. It can beat everything. Amen. The Holy Ghost can beat it. He can beat it. But you've got to use it to win. You've got to use it to win. And we think we're fighting the devil. Uh, we, we think we're fighting the devil, and you can't really know where he is or can't really lay your hands on him. You just know he's there and you're fighting him. But what the Bible tells us is that things are warring against our soul. Now, you think God is at war against your desires. You think that now because you have the Holy Spirit and he's making you miserably uncomfortable because of the wrong, bad things you're doing, that the Holy Ghost is the problem. 
that he's warring against your desires, that he's in the way, that the preacher is in the way who preaches the word and brings these things out to you and warns you and tells you that these things are wrong. He's in the way that this apostolic message and apostolic truth that we hold, that's in the way, that's hindering you. That's what you think. And if you could get the devil and fight him, you'd get your mind off what the real action is. But the real action is there are things that are coming from somewhere. Amen. And it ain't the devil it's coming from. But what it's fighting, it's warring against our soul. Our soul. Hallelujah. James, the fourth chapter. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? So whence come these wars and fightings? It's not the devil on the outside, but it's that which comes from within. It's that spirit of lust that comes from within. And so he categorized them. He put them under a very serious Human, behavioral, sinful issue, adultery. He called them adulterers and adulteresses. It was one of the worst things you could call somebody, amen, other than a murderer, would be an adulterer or an adulteress. This is to break faith. It's to break oath. It's to break covenant, amen. It's to cheat. It's to be deceitful. It's to lie. It's to be self-interested. It's to be self-fulfilling and, 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 and finding uh, self-gratitude at, at, at the expense of everyone else that is dear and beloved to you. It, it is the worst form of, of, of infamy and infidelity that we could uh, perpetrate outside of us onto other people. But it's a war that comes from within. Something inside of us that wants to have these things in our lives. Go back to 1 Peter, the fourth chapter. And verse 3 says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquet, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Your companions, your friends, your associates, your, your uh, homeboys that you hung out with back in the day, amen, they're still waiting for you with all of their drugs, with all of their alcohol, with all of their immorality, with all of their dirty jokes, with all of their filthy mind, with all of their rotten ways. They're still waiting for you, and they want to do nothing but party, party, party. And when you introduce chemicals in your body that lower your resistance and, and destroy your ability to make good, safe, conservative judgments, you, you do that so that you can enter into party, party, party without the consequences of guilt. That is the whole reason for it. It is the soap that greases the ways of the slippery slope of sin. 
And so when we abstain from these things and avoid these people places and places and things of temptation, those that knew us before think it's strange that we don't run with them for the same excessive riot. Everyone's doing it. Why don't you do it? But these are the things for the time past of our life. For the time past, we wrought, we did the will and the work of the Gentiles. Walking in lasciviousness, that's lustful behavior, sinfully, sexually lustful behavior, and lust and drunkenness and revelings and banquetings and abominable idolatries, all of this and so much more that the Bible names as sin. Things that war against the soul. What lies behind our motivations in life? What is it that is behind our motivations to behave in ways that displease the Lord? What is it? What motivates our covetousness, our materialism? What motivates our greed? What motivates our desire for power? What gives us the right to be proud. Why are we driven to things that lift our pride? What is behind the conceits of pleasure? For the pleasures of sin are for a season. Then they fade away. And when I say pleasure, that embraces many things. We could list and name many kinds of sins that have at the basis the pursuit of hedonism and pleasure. What is driving or motivating that? If you're struggling in any of these areas, you need to ask yourself, what is the motivation here? Why do I want to do this thing? What is it about this that makes me desire this or want to do it? For most of the times we are led uh, like a ring or a hook in the nose Amen. By, by the lust of, to do these things without thinking about what's driving it or what is behind it. What comes along with deceit, with disloyalty, with ingratitude, with self-indulgence, and with general sins of self-interest, selfishness. What motivates us? Something is driving us to do these things. What is it? If we could figure that out, if we could get to that point, amen, we could stop that thing from happening. But we're just being led around. You know, by, I, I just want it. I, I want it. I want it. We don't even bother to stop and think why we want it, but there's the emotion there, and there is the desire there, and, and then we, and we, and we just don't really think. We just do. We do. And when we did, we done Something that leaves an effect. Now for the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Anglicans and the Lutherans and the Catholics and all the rest of them that don't have the Holy Ghost, there is little, if any, consequence. No understanding of any of this thing. This message of grace, 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 so liberally embraced by evangelicals, it becomes meaningless because there is no motivation for grace to begin with. There is no real guilt. No real guilt. 
But we who have the Holy Spirit are in a position where our consciousness is highly directed. When we become self-conscious, we become a human soul. Our humanity, our soulish nature is based upon our self-awareness, our self-consciousness. One of the most frightening things about human behavior is psychopathy. We can't understand why someone could brutally murder someone and feel no guilt or no remorse over it. There's something wrong in that person's self-awareness. Their conscious level, their consciousness level is not working correctly. And in some cases, some of these crimes are so horrific that are committed by people and we lock them up in an insane asylum where we, we medicate them and, and, we, and we reason judgment based upon other criteria because we reason that no normal, conscious, self-aware person could deliberate in such a manner as that. So there has to be something wrong with that person's brain chemistry. There's something off somewhere. What I'm talking to you about is your soul. I'm talking about your self-awareness, your consciousness level. And what happens with the Holy Spirit is it rekindles, it reawakens that consciousness, that self-awareness that first came alive in us when we came of age, that God gave us, amen, that he put into humanity to differentiate us from every other one of his creatures, amen, and to make us something unique and special. Because if we were not consciously self-aware, we would not believe in a God or a higher power or a creator or laws or anything. We would only be motivated to, to, to be an animal and live like an animal. But because we are self-aware and conscious, we have a soul. So there are things that war against our soul. They war against the soul. Hallelujah. Going back to James 4, 4 through 10. You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. And humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. There is an antidote for the things that war against our soul. There is a reasoned approach to live life to its fullest. But as long, as long as we allow ourselves to indulge in things forbidden in the Scripture, forbidden by the Holy Spirit, so long as we do that, we are going to be 
wrecked and wrought by confusion, by anxiety, by sleepless nights, by desires to stay home from church rather than to go to church, to avoid the people of God rather than to be around the people of God. Hallelujah. You want to improve your life spiritually? Find some people who walk with God, who really walk with God and hang with them and be their friends and, and, and observe and watch and pick up their traits and their characteristics because they've learned about surviving in a spirit world some things that you can profit from. You don't have to sin and sin and hide and keep it in secret and come to church and feel anxious and feel guilty. Amen. And be destroyed and be confused and be belittled by the devil. You don't have to repeat that. Amen. If you will come to a place with God that you understand, he gives grace to the humble. He's willing to help you. But where there is war, amen, against the soul, the only conclusion is absolute surrender. You must Surrender. You have to quit fighting the word. You've got to stop fighting the preacher that preaches the word. You've got to stop fighting the church that believes and lives and exhibits the word. You've got to stop fighting the internal influence of the word in your own life. You've got to listen. You've got to be crushed. You've got to be broken. You've got to be trashed. You've got to be brought low. You've got to be humbled. Because you're warring against yourself by living a sinful life and repeating it over and over and over again. You're warring against your soul. Your soul is so unhappy. It is so unhappy. And you can do this so long and get so confused that you forget what it felt like to be free in the first place. And you can think that this way you're feeling is just a natural result. And after all, the church is not really giving me much. It's not helping me much. It's not doing much for me. And I might as well just go back to the world and live it up. I ain't having fun here. The thing of it is, is you can't have fun halfway either way. You cannot have fun halfway either way. It's all in. That's right. And since you've known the Holy Spirit, I can guarantee you you're not going to have any fun all out. You're not going to have any fun all out. Because you're going to know you're lost the whole time. You're going to sleep with the anxiety. That when you lay you down to die, your soul is going to a devil's hell, to an eternity lost without God. And you know it, amen, just like Cain knew it when he fled from the presence of the other men, amen, with an arm covered over his head, waiting for blows from heaven to strike him down, waiting for blows from men to strike him down, a paranoid, running, running in fear. And that's all you will ever do the rest of your life if you walk away from God, is to run in fear of the coming judgment you know is going to happen. It is going to happen. And you've got nothing left but fear. Hallelujah. So let me tell you, the only way you're going to make it, the only way you're going to live a good life, the only way you're going to know anything, that to enjoy anything in life, amen, is to come to the peace treaty that God has left on your table. Sign the peace treaty. Surrender. Sell out to God. Sell out to God. Kick sin out the door. Kick it out of your life. Get it out of your bedroom. Get it out of your living room. Get it out of your closet. Kick it out. Get rid of it. Hide. Go. Amen. Get rid of it. Hallelujah. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 6, and 7, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. For the carnal mind is enmity against God, 
for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's why you're not happy. You have a carnal mind. And that carnal mind is causing you to have lusts that war against your soul. They're fighting you. So when you come to church, you feel guilty. You don't feel pure. You don't feel clean. You feel guilty. Why? Because you drug your sinful soul in here. And you know good and well you're going to go right back to it when you leave out of here. And so there can't be any peace like that. The only way you're going to make it is to sell out to God. To surrender to God. To give it up to God. Romans 14 and 17, God is, God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. You want to live a happy life, you've got to do it God's way. It isn't the things of this world. It's not the things that the flesh desires. It's what God desires. It's what he wants. Amen. When you finally Japan out, when you finally Germany out, when you set out, when you crush out, when you surrender, when you give up, when you say, I'm beaten, I'm beaten, God. You beat me. I give up. I surrender. Only then. Romans 15 and 37. Now the God of peace be with you all. Romans 16 and 20, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Hallelujah. You want victory over the devil? You want to win this fight with the devil? You have to win the fight with yourself first. You can't do anything against the devil with your hands tied behind your back because of the bondage that you've allowed yourself to get into. You're bound by sin. Amen. You're bound by the sin. You do. You indulge. You bring it to yourself. You create it. And you want to fight the devil, but you can't because your hands are tied. But when you surrender to God and the bondage is broken, hallelujah, then, then, the peace of God, hallelujah, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet. Shortly. 1 Corinthians 14 and 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Amen. You want peace? You've got to give up the battle. The confusion is because of the battle. It's because of the fight. It's because you're not convinced yet. You're beaten down, but you haven't surrendered. That's why you're confused. You're getting beat up, but you're not willing to give up. And so you're confused up. But when you say, okay, I'm beat, God. I'm beat. I'm, I'm coming to the altar. I'm running to the altar. I'm praying through. I'm giving it up. I'm giving it up. I'm leaving it behind. I'm not going to go back to it. You win, God. You win. Philippians 4 and 7. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. War and peace. War and peace. You're a spirit. You're a soul. And you will have war as long as you're in this body. But the, the pathway to peace is surrender. War and peace. The pathway to peace Surrender. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Then you can resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Hallelujah. A great parliament of religions was held in Chicago many years ago, and about every religion on earth was represented, and there were many learned discourses being delivered on various religious thought. And during one session... Dr. Joseph Cook of Boston suddenly rose and said, Gentlemen, I beg to introduce to you a woman with great sorrow 
bloodstains are on her hands, and nothing she has tried can remove them. The blood is that of murder, and nothing will take away the stain. She has been driven to desperation in her distress. Is there anything in your religion that will remove her sin and give her peace? A hush fell upon the gathering as the speaker turned from one to another for an answer. Not one of the company replied. Raising his eyes heavenward, Dr. Cook then cried out, I will ask another question. John, can you tell this woman how to get rid of her awful sin? The great preacher awaited as if listening for a reply. Then suddenly he cried, listen, John speaks. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1 and 7. Not a soul broke the silence. The representatives of the Eastern religions and Western cults sat dumb. In the face of human need, they were without a message of hope. For the gospel of Jesus Christ alone could meet that need. And the sin of the race demanded the blood of Calvary. Oh, hallelujah. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm closing. I'm closing. Hallelujah. Lately, I've been praying. I felt so impressed to play. Pray the blood of Jesus. I plead the blood of Jesus. I just feel it coming out of me. Just the need. The blood, the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus cover me. The blood of Jesus cover the church. The blood of Jesus cover cancer. The blood of Jesus cover sickness. The blood, the blood. And I think and I remember my mother. My mother in times of dire need and great stress would pray. I plead the blood. I plead the blood. I could hear her in my mind praying. I plead the blood. I plead the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. The story about years ago, a man attending the deathbed of an old minister down in Alabama. And the old man had been a great preacher for over 50 years. And this man said, I saw his son, which was also a minister, kneel by his father's bed. Father, he said, you've preached for 50 years and have done more good than any man I know. The old man with a feeble but distinct voice said, don't tell me about that son. Tell me about the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus for a dying man. If a man who had preached for 50 years and who lived a pure and straight life in his dying hour had to rely upon the blood of Jesus, don't you ever think there's any hope for you aside from the atoning blood of Jesus? But what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood. I need the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm going to open the altar tonight. Amen. I'm going to open the altar. It'll be an altar call tonight. Amen. If you want to come and pray and plead the blood. Hallelujah. Amen. Against the things that war against your soul. The things that are hurting your soul and robbing you of peace. Amen. Come before the Lord and cry out to Jesus. Oh, the blood, the blood, cover me by the blood of the Lamb. I need the blood. Minister to me your grace and your mercy. Save me by the blood. I plead the blood of Jesus. 
Thank you. 